This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America by Joshua Frank. Once home to the U.S.'s largest plutonium production site, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State is laced with 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. The threat of an explosive accident at Hanford is all too real, an event that could be more catastrophic than Chernobyl. In the context of renewed support for atomic power, Joshua Frank criticizes nuclear technology and shines a spotlight on the ravages of Hanford and its threat to communities, workers, and the global environment. As Nick Estes puts it, the Hanford site haunts the future of the Columbia River Basin, its land, people, plants, and animals. It's a nuclear crime scene that once made atomic weaponry. Joshua Frank dissects the historical crime scene, tracing it back to the colonization of this land, while also pointing to the future crimes that may have been unleashed by perpetual radioactive pollution. Atomic Days by Joshua Frank, out now from Haymarket Books, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. When you think about the American Civil Liberties Union, what likely comes to mind is an organization that, for better or for worse, protects free speech in the courts. An organization that defends a leftist's right to burn a flag or a Nazi's right to march or, most astoundingly, a corporation's right to quote-unquote speak through campaign donations, which they did when they supported the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. What you might not know is that the ACLU emerged during World War I as a crusader for the radical labor movement, working to protect the free speech rights of groups like the industrial workers of the world as a means to the end of the general strike and revolution. My guest today is Laura Weinrib, and we're discussing her brilliant book, The Taming of Free Speech, America's Civil Liberties Compromise. Weinrib traces the rise of the modern civil liberties movement and modern constitutional liberalism more broadly, beginning with progressive-era social workers who, concerned about the plight of labor and amid the repression of the First World War, found the American Union Against Militarism, whose Bureau for Conscientious Objectors later became the National Civil Liberties Bureau and then the ACLU. Weinrib's book then traces the ACLU's journey from defending free speech as a labor tactic to defending it as a neutral principle, but still at that point as a tactical means towards the end of labor movement advancement. The story then moves on to the Scopes trial in Tennessee and the defense of the right for so-called obscene materials like sex ed manuals to be distributed through the mail. All the while, the ACLU began to discover that the courts, once deemed a mortal enemy of labor, could be an ally in striking down laws that they opposed. 
With the New Deal, the state for the first time stepped up to defend rather than repress union rights. The ACLU, however, remained wary of the state, thanks in part to its history with the IWW and the severe repression meted out during World War I. But they were also on their way to becoming a different sort of organization entirely, a respectable, liberal, and court-oriented one. Ultimately, the ACLU helped create the conditions for the judiciary to reestablish its wounded legitimacy on the basis that it was a protector of civil liberties, which allowed the judiciary to successfully fight off FDR's famous New Deal-era efforts to dramatically curb its power. As the New Deal progressed and union militancy grew, the ACLU completed its move from defending free speech as a means to revolutionary ends to a liberal position exalting free speech as an end unto itself, including the anti-union speech of bosses and the political speech of corporations. As Weinrib writes, quote, Nothing in the ACLU's past had raised so basic a challenge to its theory of civil liberties. To be sure, the organization had defended speech that its leaders reviled, but the rights of the Ku Klux Klan to rally in Catholic Boston or the Nazi Party to march in New Jersey were the rights of disfavored minorities to organize for social change, however repugnant. In other words, nothing signaled the transformation of this one-time, substantively radical labor organization into a procedurally liberal one than when it came around to the view that the First Amendment protected a so-called marketplace of ideas, within which boss and worker alike must be heard. This book contains multitudes, and ultimately, it explains how we ended up with our present moment with this powerful counter-majoritarian judiciary that has embraced the First Amendment as a tool to prop up unchecked corporate power and weaken unions, all while powerful organized labor tools like secondary strikes and boycotts remain illegal and without the court's protection. One quick aside, one name you'll hear Weinrib mention a few times is Roger Baldwin. He's the Harvard man from a wealthy family who turned into a labor radical who founded the ACLU, convinced Big Bill Haywood to sponsor him for an IWW membership, but who ultimately helped bar communists from the organization's leadership and steer it toward its liberal future. He is quite a character, and you should read the book to learn more about him. I wanted to provide this general outline of the history before we get to the show because it's a complex and really important story. I also briefly want to encourage you to check out our weekly newsletter at thedigradio.com. They're really very good. And while they're available for everyone for free right there on the website, I'm guessing that your orders of magnitude more likely to read them if you get them by email. And the way to do that is to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We'll send you the newsletter for a contribution of any amount at all. For at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. But really, who cares about all that stuff? The stuff is nice. The real reason you should support the podcast is because listener contributions are the only reason I can spend all this time preparing for these interviews and why I can pay everyone who helps put the show out. So if you appreciate what we're doing here, please contribute what feels right. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, 
Here's Laura Weinrib, a professor at Harvard Law School and at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. A legal historian, she studies how social movements, and especially labor unions, have used the law as a tool for political and economic change. She's the author of The Taming of Free Speech, America's Civil Liberties Compromise, and is currently writing a book on why unions stood by while corporate money consumed American politics. Laura Weinrib, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before we get into all the history you wrote, let's start by describing where things are at right now to remind us of of what's familiar before we explore this unfamiliar past that you write about. What does civil liberties mean today? And what is the American Civil Liberties Union? Civil liberties today means a constellation of rights that are asserted against the state. They're typically tied to autonomy. They are, as I said, asserted against the state as opposed to private actors. And they are, and this is a key part of the story I'll be telling, they are enforced by the courts. So our modern understanding of civil liberties is this notion that people can uh, have a lot of space to engage in personal activity, expression that may be unpopular, and that the state should, for the most part, stay out. And in particular, I want to focus on our modern understanding of the First Amendment, which is this idea that the First Amendment protects the right of speakers to express ideas, however unpopular or subversive, and that if the government tries to silence or punish the speaker for their views, that speaker can turn to the courts. And the courts are going to rely on the First Amendment to overturn a conviction or to invalidate a a suppressive law. So in other words, we have this idea that First Amendment is perhaps the quintessential civil liberty, and civil liberties are these rights held by individuals against the state. The ACLU as an organization is committed to advancing those civil liberties. I should say not only. There are a lot of aspects to the ACLU's agenda today, a lot of different projects, but it's this First Amendment project in particular that has been at the core of popular understanding of the organization really from its inception, or if not its inception, and and this is where the, the history becomes complicated, at least from 1940, which is when I argue the modern uh, concept of the First Amendment took shape. By contrast, in the early 20th century, it was labor radicals at the ACLU and its predecessor organizations who who began to embrace and define civil liberties as fundamentally linked to what you call the right to agitation. What did agitation mean at that time? And how did it go beyond or differ from this now conventional distinction between expression that's protected by the First Amendment and actions that are not? Yeah. So if you open up a contemporary labor law casebook, you'll see that the the kind of rights that I've suggested were core to the right of agitation, the rights to engage in labor picketing and the rights to engage in boycotts, including secondary boycotts. Those are 
heavily regulated, and they do not today receive First Amendment protection. They're just outside the scope of what the First Amendment protects. You know, in some sense, this is puzzling because actually picketing and boycotts in other contexts in the First Amendment are considered absolutely core expressive material. So you have famous cases like NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware involving boycotts. You have all the cases protecting civil rights picketing during the middle of the 20th century that basically hold out this activity as core protected expression. But the kind of activity that's not protected, that is considered to be, in the court's view, conduct rather than speech or coercive rather than persuasive, is this labor activity, the very labor activity that the early ACLU and its allies within the labor movement were determined to protect. Now, it might be worth saying at the outset that this was a really awkward fit for the First Amendment. And there had been efforts uh, by Samuel Gompers of the AFL and others to try to get some of this activity protected. They were essentially uh, laughed out of court. So this was always sort of an audacious claim. When the ACLU started making it, it didn't actually expect to win. And so one of the things we really need to talk about is, is why this became a First Amendment strategy at all. The ACLU's initial commitment to the right of agitation, which was modeled on uh, the commitments of the IWW and other radical labor organizations, was not at first a judicial vision at all. Let's get into the history. You write, quote, while the worst repression came in wartime, the regulation of expression was a routine affair in 19th century America. To set some historical context, what what from the 1798 Alien and Sedition Acts to the eve of World War One, what was the status quo? What was normal when it came to government regulation of expression and and then the judiciary's relationship in particular to evaluating that regulation's constitutionality? It was routine in 19th century life to limit in many ways the sorts of things people could say. Now, this isn't to say that there was no commitment to free speech. On the contrary, throughout American history, pretty much everyone has uh, declared themselves to be in favor of free speech. But the question, as one uh, early 20th century reporter put it, was how free free speech should be. uh, And that's where regulation comes into play and was routine. So anything that was perceived to cross the line in terms of public order, public safety, morality, was routinely suppressed both by neighbors and private actors, uh, sometimes lynch mobs, also by government actors. And while there were occasional efforts, especially in state courts, to try to assert free speech defenses to prosecutions for engaging in what was considered to be dangerous speech, courts almost never even considered those arguments seriously. And there's no case of the Supreme Court striking down a law for infringing on free speech prior 
to the interwar period. One thing I should say in this context is that the First Amendment, in in terms of its text, applies only to the federal government. It begins, Congress shall make no law. And until it was uh, what's known as incorporated into the 14th Amendment during the interwar period, it didn't even bind the states or local actors. Which is a pretty huge loophole. <laughs> it, it is a pretty huge loophole. Um, the states did in their own constitutions and also in lots of non-constitutional law protect speech in all kinds of ways. But when push comes to shove, uh, if speech was considered disorderly, threatening, even uncivil, it was shut down and there were no meaningful constitutional protections in place. When the ACLU was founded after World War I, you write, quote, it declared itself an adjunct of the radical labor movement. But, but before we get to the ACLU and its predecessor organizations that were founded during World War I, let's Let's discuss the labor movement of that era. What did the labor movement in both its mainstream and radical currents look like in the 19-teens? And just more generally, what was the state of American industrial conflict? One of the major arguments in the book is that the civil liberties movement, the modern civil liberties movement, was born not out of World War, not out of World War I as the conventional story uh, ordinarily casts it, but rather out of class war. And when I say class war, uh, I mean it. So there were violent struggles on the streets, in the factories, bombings, mass protests that were perceived by everyone involved as extremely intense uh, and in some cases quite threatening. That said, the mainstream labor movement tended to be at some remove from the violence. So the American Federation of Labor by this point, after flirting with some more radical methods uh, in the late 19th century, had settled into a focus on improving wages and working conditions, essentially working within capitalism. And it was focused on representing its members within established trade unions and, in particular, skilled workers. On the other hand, there were increasingly other parts of the labor movement that were committed to a broader vision of what economic change through labor organizing could look like. And the main organization uh, I talk about in connection with the history of the civil liberties movement is the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Uh, they had split off from the Socialist Party because of a disagreement about whether change should be accomplished through economic methods or political methods. They rejected the emphasis on politics. What they wanted was something they called the revolutionary general strike, uh, which was this notion that the workers would simultaneously lay down uh, their tools that the owners uh, of capital would have no choice but to turn the means of production over to them, and that in this way, peaceful revolutionary change could occur. The IWW is important 
to this story in large part because of one of its strategies during the first two decades of the century, which have gotten a fair amount of attention in the literature. That was uh, what was what were called the free speech fights, and the free speech fights were initially a means of of actually uh, trying to get protection for IWW recruitment through its hiring halls in order to bring workers into the movement. But what happened was those efforts to organize were routinely shut down. Now, this was nothing new. Socialists had also long been silenced for engaging in street speaking and pamphleteering, and they too had uh, made claims about their free speech being violated. But when the socialists did it, they actually seemed to want to bring about meaningful constitutional change, an expansion of political accommodation, maybe not so much at the level of judicial interpretation, but at least in terms of political accommodation of uh, unpopular speech. The IWW, by contrast, because they did not trust in state actors of any kind, whether the courts or administrators or uh, even legislatures, preferred to get arrested for the purposes, as they put it, of showing up the hypocrisy of the courts. This was a way of basically shutting the judicial system down. So they would show up on street corners, start reading uh, maybe labor texts, maybe the First Amendment uh, or the Constitution, and they would get themselves arrested, flood the jails with the goal of essentially either forcing the officials to release them because they simply had no more capacity or Barring that, if, as often happened, the result was brutal arrests and also brutal mob violence, uh, to draw attention to the violence uh, directed toward IWW organizers. Unsurprisingly, given everything we were just discussing, labor radicals of that era regarded the judiciary and the Constitution, in many cases, as reactionary obstacles rather than allies in their struggle. What did public policing of labor organizing look look like at the time? And and what role did did the judiciary play in it by by directly restricting actions organized workers could take through through judicial injunctions? Courts played a few roles in policing labor activity during this period. The most important, the one that was most abhorrent to the labor movement were their roles in issuing what were known as labor injunctions. So labor injunctions were shut down labor activity, enjoined labor activity on a number of theories. Some of them had to do with common law property rights. Some of them had to do increasingly with notions that uh, strike activity interfered with the rights of employers or non-union workers. Sometimes they were operating through antitrust law, which uh, despite carve-outs for labor had been used to go after the concerted activity of workers. Uh, But the key point is that when unions engaged in concerted activity, the courts routinely stood uh, in the way and blocked their ability to, to do so. 
So I've spoken a bit about the free speech fights, and the free speech fights captured one part of workers' perception that their speech rights were being trampled. The laws at issues in those cases were typically bans on public speaking or leafleting. But the other part, and this was the part that was really crucial to labor, this you know was less recognizable today, but really mattered at the time. And that was the class of restrictions targeting strikes, pickets, and boycotts. And sometimes that took the form of anti-picketing law. More often, it took the form of labor injunctions issued by courts. So to understand what what courts were doing here, we we may need to just pause for some terminology. Um, So first, you know, what did it mean to strike in this period? The strike was, uh, at its basic level, a systematic quitting of employment for the purposes of inducing the employer to grant some demand of the striker, accompanied by an effort to prevent others from taking the place of the people who who quit. I want to say that strikes were sometimes spontaneous expressions of solidarity. Sometimes they were what we think of today as sort of associational expressions of uh, of solidarity. More often, they were coordinated efforts to apply economic pressure. And that's what made them effective. So an employer who failed to meet a union's demand risked spoilage of goods, risked contractual damages on misdeliveries, reputational harms. That was especially true if the workers managed uh, to discourage replacement workers from taking their jobs. So by the late 19th century, the right to engage in what was known as a simple strike was actually pretty well established. Workers could quit their jobs collectively for the purposes of raising wages or for the purposes of improving working conditions at their own workplace. And maybe they could even post a couple of pickets who would peacefully inform customers that there was a labor dispute going on. But workers wanted more than the right to engage in a simple strike, because the reality was that that simple strikes rarely accomplished anything. Um, Employers would respond to worker demands by hiring strike breakers or by bringing in spies and private security guards to discourage union activity in the first place. I should say some employers also required workers to sign what were known as yellow dog contracts, uh, which were agreements not to join a union. So union organizers who tried to recruit workers who had signed yellow dog contracts were liable for tortious interference with contract for, for contractual damages. Okay, so what did unions do? They turned to more aggressive tactics. Tactics. So they stationed mass pickets uh, to deter strike breakers and sometimes to close off access to employer property. They tried to close the shop. In other words, they tried to uh, secure agreements from employers that the employer would only hire union members. And they also engaged in secondary strikes and secondary boycotts. Those labor actions put pressure on third parties to cease business relations with the primary target. So even a secondary employer that had a friendly relationship with the union would actually be subject to sanctions if it continued to do business with the primary. I want to mention one more aspect of this, which is important to understand. I think other labor histories sometimes gloss over this point. 
But these tactics could be quite hard on their targets. Uh, sometimes a small employer in a small town could not afford wages at union pay scale. And so maybe the only way to compete with large unionized manufacturers was, say, you know, to sell uh, their hats at lower prices, to draw on a famous case about this. So the workers at that shop might be perfectly willing to accept lower pay because the alternative was, say, to leave their hometown, not to em- have employment at all. But the union that represented the workers at the large factory knew that allowing the small shop to continue to operate, to continue to undersell them, uh, would undermine their own long-term efforts to raise wages. So, you know, they might picket retail stores who sold non-union hats to pressure them with the goal of shutting that non-union producer down or take a union member who failed to honor a boycott. That worker risked expulsion from the union, which in a well-organized trade might mean risking not just their current job, but future employment. And, you know, sometimes this even carried over to family members of strike breakers who who were subject to union discipline. Now, I'm saying all this because I think it's really important to understand what the consequences of this labor activity was. Often we sort of present it as if uh, unions were just uh, sort of engaging in a celebration of solidarity, but actually they were uh, exerting economic pressure. That was the point. That was why it worked. And when it worked, it was really powerful. But courts were not inclined to see this as speech, and courts were not inclined to allow it to proceed at all. So we have to keep in mind uh, that these were the kinds of labor tactics that workers in the early 20th century were using, that these were the kind of tactics that they were trying to get protected, that these were the kinds of tactics that courts were enjoining. In other words, were subjecting uh, unions to orders saying, you can't do this. And this is what the, the early ACLU tried to protect as First Amendment activity. And this wasn't just to repress the radical labor movement. You write that even the AFL Samuel Gompers, a labor moderate quite hostile to the IWW and later to the CIO, he was sentenced to prison after refusing to obey a court injunction against adding this company, Buck Stove and Range Company, to we don't patronize and unfair lists of of, of companies to, to not patronize. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, this is a famous case, Gompers v. Buck Stove. And as you said, uh, Gompers himself was was uh, sentenced to prison for criminal contempt for refusal to comply with the terms uh, of an injunction against that we do not uh, we don't patronize or unfair list. This is a, a moment to bring in this concept of contempt. What happened was when judges issued these orders, if somebody violated them, they could be charged with contempt and imprisoned without a jury trial because the violation of the injunction was itself unlawful. And that's part of what made them so dangerous. So did the fact that they were often issued ex parte without an opportunity for the union to say what it was doing. Uh, They were often issued uh, because the employer came in and said, we expect 
reflect violence. And on that basis, the court would uh, would issue an, an injunction. Um, that Buck Stove case is fascinating because because Gompers says this is protected First Amendment activity. The court basically laughs uh, at that idea. Uh, and you get statements in uh, the lower court in that case uh, and in lots of other cases uh, of this time along the lines of this is activity like any other. Uh, it's just as legitimate for a court to enjoin the use of a, uh, as they put it, man's hand in uh, the context of unlawful activity as the use of their tongue. Um, I should say the Supreme Court ultimately reversed that case on technical grounds, but but it flatly rejected the idea that the First Amendment uh, was uh, even implicated by a boycott. You write, quote, Labor leaders were disinclined to pursue a judicial strategy for enforcing union activity as a species of free speech because the judiciary invariably undercut labor's most significant gains. Far better, they thought, to strip the courts of the authority to curtail their activity in the first place. How did they propose to do that? Lots of people at this time thought as you've just suggested, that this sort of activity should be protected and that it maybe was a form uh, of uh, free speech. But that's not what they were pushing for in court. In other words, what they didn't propose as a solution to shutting down activity of this kind was for courts to get more involved in protecting expressive freedom. So why? In a nutshell, because they saw judicial enforcement of constitutional rights as a terrible idea. So to some extent, this is about the kind of cases we associate with the Supreme Court's 1905 decision in Lochner v. New York. Uh, That was the case in which the the court struck down a New York maximum hours law for, for bakers on the theory that it violated bakers' liberty of contract. In other words, their their liberty to contract for what amounted to abysmal working conditions. This was a right that the Supreme Court had written into the 14th Amendment in an earlier case, an 1897 case called Allgaier v. Louisiana. And reasoning of this kind was used to strike down lots of protective legislation, so the minimum wage, the eight-hour day, workers' compensation. But for union activists, many of whom were skeptical of that kind of legislation in the first place, Lochner wasn't the worst offender. What they were more distressed about were the cases that relied on Allgaier and liberty of contract to not just issue labor injunctions, but also to invalidate the few efforts by state uh, and federal legislators to protect labor activity in the first place. So in other words, there were uh, a few early efforts to, for example, prohibit yellow dog contracts. The Supreme Court comes in and says, no, those are unconstitutional violations uh, of liberty of contract. Given all of that, so given labor injunctions, given the eagerness with which courts convicted strikers uh, as well as uh, organizers who were engaging in speaking and pamphleting, 
given the fact uh, that courts were using a particular style of reasoning, often called legal formalism or classical legal thought, to invalidate efforts to protect that activity. There was this sense, as uh, one uh, activist put it in the period, that the courts were engaged in a big game of heads I win, tails you lose. That basically any time you turned to the courts, it was going to uh, side with employers. There were differences of opinion about why that might be. Uh, Some people thought it was because of uh, graft, bribery. Maybe the judges were in the pocket of the employers. Uh, Others had uh, sort of more sophisticated critiques of the way that legal reasoning was infused with concepts that were antagonistic to group rights and collective power. Uh, Some thought it was about the social circles judges ran in or their uh, law school education. Uh, But for all those reasons, um, you know, the response to cases like Buck's Stove wasn't that the court had misconstrued the First Amendment and just needed to reconsider its reasoning. The response was the entire constitutional system is stacked against workers. And the solution, you know, time and time again, courts had undercut labor's most significant gains. And the solution, they thought, was to strip the authority of the courts, not to expand it. Yeah, I mean, pretty understandable. This is a judiciary that takes the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War to protect freed black people to first and foremost protect corporate power. It's <laughs> it's not a surprise that they thought that this institution was not was not their friend. And it, it wasn't just the labor movement that that opposed judicial power and proposed curbing it. So did many progressives who advocated for the ability to popularly recall judicial decisions or to simply end judicial review, which which brings us to a big context setting question. Who were the progressives? What was the progressive era? And and how did that all relate to the labor movement and labor radicals that we've been discussing? Great. So progressivism is a notoriously hard concept to define. It's really hard to generalize about who the progressives were. There have been generations worth of articles arguing about this point. Um, I'll say they fought for everything from tenement housing laws to the income tax to municipal ownership of public utilities, but also things like prohibition and even eugenics. So needless to say, there was a lot of disagreement among progressives. What united them maybe most of all was not a positive program, but what they stood in opposition to. Uh, What they shared was an aversion to federal courts and to a style of legal reasoning that I've already uh, alluded to, often described, as I've said, as, as legal formalism or classical legal thought. So this was the idea that legal actors were autonomous and that the private sphere, including property rights and contractual relations, somehow existed apart from public power. So, you know, progressives shared, uh, as I said, an aversion to, to that concept. They tended to share a commitment to what they described as the public good, public welfare. Let me know one other thing 
progressives disagreed about was unions. So most progressives supported government regulation of work hours uh, and labor conditions. They saw that as serving the public good. So many progressives supported protective labor legislation. They, they were staunch advocates. They, they got it passed, often actually against union opposition. So uh, a lot of unions were worried that protective legislation of that kind would actually undermine union power. They would make unions less important. Samuel Gompers said that on multiple occasions, that uh, the workers he represented should extract concessions through their concerted uh, activity, not through uh, the, the sort of beneficence of the, the generosity of the, of the state. The IWW, by the way, also felt that very strongly. Uh, as I've already suggested, they rejected uh, political reforms of this kind. But in any case, progressives tended to come together behind this kind of legislation. On the other hand, some of them were not so keen about unionism as a solution. So they recognized the problem of class war, the progressives, that is, recognized the problem of class war. Uh, they recognized that workers were suffering, uh, that there was truly uh, abysmal conditions in many working places, that workers lacked meaningful protections, that their wages were not living wages. They recognized all those problems. But for them, what that meant, the reason it was a problem, was because it tended to create class conflict. And rather than seeing class struggle as uh, positive or inevitable, they saw it as a real problem. And some of them felt that unions were stoking division in a way that would undermine the public good. On the other hand, some did not. So there were some progressives who accepted unions as necessary, who, whether or not they saw it as the, the first best solution, they basically said, look, we need a counterweight to corporate power, and unions are the way of accomplishing that, uh, basically countering employers' greater economic and politi political power. Some of them uh, were even more enthusiastic about uh, unions and actually were uh, quite involved in organizing various, various aspects uh, of the labor movement. You, you tell the story of the 1910 bombing of the LA Times building by John McNamara, who Remarkably, was not an IWW member, but secretary treasurer of the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers, an, an AFL union. And that was in retaliation for the paper's lead role, something that I've read detailed in, I think, Mike Davis's City of Courts and a number of other books, in retaliation for the paper's lead role in that city's brutally anti union politics. The bombing accidentally, but ac did kill 21 people and caused a massive scandal. While many wouldn't go as far as the radical lawyer Clarence Darrow, who, who believed that the actions were essentially justified and, and who represented McNamara, progressive era leaders remarkably did latch onto the bombing as a case study in what goes wrong when government refuses to take action to mitigate class conflict in a modern industrial society. Why was it? What did progressives argue the significance of the LA Times bombing 
was. Yeah, that's right. So the L.A. Times bombing is really a, a fascinating episode because the initial reaction after the explosion, when the L.A. Times blamed unions for the bombing was to assume this was uh, a frame-up. And uh, that's what Samuel Gomper said. And they said that because actually this was at a pretty auspicious time in uh, L.A. for the labor movement after having been, uh, as you suggested, brutally um, suppressed for years. There were actually some inroads being made. Uh, in L.A. during this period. And uh, that spring, uh, 1,500 metal workers had walked off uh, the job. Uh, and, and, and by the way, the Times at that time called for an armed mob to drive them into the sea, uh, calling them murderous vermin. So there was this sense that this might be uh, some sort of inside job. And when arrests were made, uh, when John McNamara and his brother James were arrested, Uh, there was this sort of outpouring of support. And then what happened was the McNamara's confessed. And it caused, as you said, a total a total crisis. Uh, Clarence Darrow uh, did, to some extent, as you suggest, defend the action. He did say uh, that that uh, as did McNamara that there was uh, that it was important morally to understand that violent that that the loss of life had not been uh, intended. But Darrow actually said, you know, there are worse things than um, loss of life, and that it, in some sense labor violence might uh, be justified. So there's this big backlash against the labor movement after this, this sense, uh, and this is, uh, you know, the Times, uh, the LA Times was uh, pushing this, but it's it was actually uh, significantly more broad spread than that. There was this sense that labor was dangerous. This proved that actually unions are, in fact, just as bad as Otis and the the, time, the LA Times had said. I want to emphasize many people denounced union activists as thugs after this happened, but not everyone. And, and some progressives, as you said, came away with a different lesson, namely that, you know, things must be pretty bad if people are so desperate that they're resorting to violence. So just uh, just weeks after um, the McNamara's pleaded guilty, a group of prominent progressive social workers presented a petition to Republican President William Howard Taft. And these were not radicals. These were people like important uh, progressive reformers like Florence Kelly, uh, Jane Addams, Rabbi Stephen Wise. These were people who believed in bureaucratic expertise. They believed in a unified public good, not class struggle, but they also believed that something was deeply wrong. And they wanted, uh, in typical progressive fashion, they wanted a congressional commission to undertake a study of why this happened, why working people in America were so desperate, and why they were turning to violence instead of legal means to express their grievances. 
I should say Taft uh, was not exactly a uh, likely candidate to launch this commission, um, but he nonetheless promised to do so. You know, I, I think historians' best guess is that this was basically a way of staving off more radical measures. Um, but the result was a really important body, the Commission on Industrial Relations. It was a nine-member body uh, that included equal representation for business, the public, and, and for the first time, uh, also organized labor. The U.S. entry into World War I really stopped these progressive era efforts to protect labor rights amid this climate of overwhelming national emergency. In response, some of these progressive social workers involved in those labor reform efforts we were just discussing founded an organization called the American Union Against Militarism, whose Bureau for Conscientious Objectors later became the National Civil Liberties Bureau, and finally, ultimately, the ACLU. What was the political climate like after the war broke out, and why did it lead to such draconian repression of the labor left? And then why, amid all that, did this more left-wing subset of progressive-era labor reformers found an organization to defend anti-war dissent and conscientious objection to serving in the war? How, How did that one thing connect and lead to the other? The degree of repression during World War I is quite staggering and was actually quite a surprise to the people living through it. There had been initially an active uh, group of people opposed to entry into the war. In fact, there was a lot of opposition to entry into World War I. And in part because of that, there was a sense that a massive national propaganda campaign was necessary to persuade people that the war was a good idea. This is associated with the Creel Committee. Uh, There were people who went throughout the country giving pro-war speeches. But this kind of propaganda campaign, in a way, we might say worked too well. So that within a few months after uh, U.S. entry into the war, you were seeing uh, vigilante violence against uh, opponents of the war, people who gave uh, speeches uh, against the war, even uh, where they made statements along the lines of religious duty, Jesus was a pacifist and wouldn't want war, they would get violently beaten. Um, there, one of my, uh, I think one of the most telling examples is uh, a film was a filmmaker was sentenced to 20 years uh, in prison under the Espionage Act for producing a film about the Revolutionary War because it cast Britain, a war ally, in in a poor light. Um, So we're talking about serious suppression of dissenting speech. Now, what's interesting about this is that there was a fair amount of progressive buy-in to the speech suppressive climate. This was a little bit of a turn for progressives because progressives had long valued free speech. I've talked a lot about how progressives didn't like the court, and that is absolutely true, and didn't like a sort of strand of autonomy-based constitutional 
liberalism. Uh, they saw claims that were premised on individual rights as against the public interest as a bad idea. But they did think free speech was important. And that's because free speech, open debate, was how progressive ideas got themselves translated into law. Ideas that had been considered undesirable or taboo uh, a few decades or years earlier, made their way into legislation through free and open debate. So the progressives, for the most part, were, until World War I, quite encouraging of open debate. It occurs to me, I should say, one, one more thing about that progressive period, which is we didn't talk about what sort of solutions the progressives suggested before World War I. And briefly, their suggestions took a variety of forms, but often it was administrative toleration or moderation. Prosecutors shouldn't go after speakers. They should allow people to speak. Administrators uh, should exercise discretion to allow this sort of speech. Um, to the extent that the Commission of Industrial Relations report offered uh, some solutions, they were about uh, passing constitutional amendments to protect personal rights as opposed to property rights. There was a sense that the court was enforcing property rights, pers not personal rights, and so, uh, uh, like free speech. Uh, and so personal rights should be protected, but at the same time, I should say, coupled with a another amendment that would have stripped judicial review, that would have stripped the ability to enforce the con constitutional limitations, as they were then called uh, at all. But all of this is to say that while progressives were reluctant to invest courts with authority to police the boundaries of the First Amendment, they had not historically been antagonistic to speech. In contrast, I should say, to conservatives who often talked the talk of individual rights, but who prioritized public order and public safety and who were typically quite opposed to uh, permitting speakers they considered as subversive to speak. Okay, so this brings us to World War I, when all of a sudden you get this massive suppression, and how do the, how do the progressives respond? So most progressives, at least early on, responded by saying, sure, it was important to allow free speech up until the time that war was declared. It was really important to get open public debate as that crucial decision was made. But now the time for free speech has ceased. <laughs> They're like democratic centralists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they 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 make some really remarkable statements uh basically saying the moment for open discussion uh, has has passed and all citizens need to defer to democratic processes, both in the interest of successfully advancing the war to end all wars. They thought this was a war to, uh, to save democracy, uh, but also in a show of proper deference to social welfare. You know, they, they initially saw claims to be able to speak or to uh, be a conscientious objector. And, and you asked about conscientious objectors. That was actually the sort of core constituency of the NCLB, the uh, precursor to the ACLU, was conscientious objectors. And they said, Look, you know, you can't allow individual conscience to trump democratic will. And they also considered President Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson to, to be one of their own. So the progressives certainly considered Woodrow Wilson by this point to, to, to be one of one of their own. Strikingly, the NCLB 
considered Woodrow Wilson to be one of their own. And that proved to be somewhat overly optimistic because he was, you know, there were ACL, there were NCLB allies within the administration. There was a sense Woodrow Wilson had committed himself to free speech. There was a sense that it would be possible to work with the administration to create exemptions from the draft for conscientious objectors. Let let me say a little bit about what the NCLB was hoping for, who they were trying to help. The NCLB took the position that many socialists and labor leftists did during this period, which was that World War I was a capitalist war. The American government was sending working people to the front lines in the service of industry and capital. And they also saw the war as a pretext for crushing the labor movement. So there were a number of conscientious objectors who objected to military service under all circumstances. And actually, Congress made some accommodations for members of well-recognized religious sects, like the Quakers, for clergy members. There was even working with the administration some accommodation for conscientious objectors who were simply uh, based on deeply held moral scruples opposed to war, and so the provision for them of uh, alternative service. Um, But what the the NCLB wanted to protect was people who shared this class view of military service, who said, I'd be willing to serve in a class war. It's not that I object to the taking of life. It's that I object to serving in this particular capitalist war. And as friendly as some of the ACLU, the I'm sorry, the NCLB's correspondence within the administration were, they simply were not willing to go that far. They wrote the emerging NCLB leadership letters that basically said what you're asking for is for for any individual to be able uh, to trump uh, political decisions and uh, basically serve as their own check on state policy. And that's not consistent with progressivism. It's It's the very sort of thing that progressives opposed about the judiciary stepping in and checking or overturning or invalidating decisions made by the democratic state. Yes, uh, with one caveat, which is at this point, they weren't asking for a judiciary, for the judiciary to invalidate the Selective Service Act, though they did do so by the following fall. But initially, they were trying to work within government channels, which was the tried and true progressive method for obtaining accommodations. It's just that they were seeking accommodations uh, for something that looked awfully tied to individual autonomy as opposed to the public welfare. You know, I should say that during this period, there was emerging a new defense uh, of free speech. And this is where the conventional story of the modern first uh, modern civil liberties typic- uh, movement typically begins. Increasingly, people like John Dewey and Zechariah Chafee were starting uh, to get nervous about the degree of repression they were seeing and basically said, free speech can be defended as a constitutional, well, they were ambivalent about whether this could be uh, a judicially enforceable right, but certainly as a sort of constitutional commitment, not because it's a liberty of the kind that we associate property rights, an individual liberty or autonomy concept of speech, but rather because it serves the public good. 
If we're going to be asking people, they said, to defer to the outcomes of the democratic process, to defer to laws that democratic legislatures pass, to defer to the draft more than anything, um, then we should protect their right to protest those laws to ensure that they have uh, legitimacy. This was a a new, it had roots, deeper roots, but it was a new concept, a new progressive concept of free speech. It was not the concept of the small band of NCLB activists who would later go on to found the ACLU. And at the time that this new progressive concept of free speech was finding its expression in the dissents of Supreme Court justices Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and uh, Louis Brandeis. Yes, it would after the war. Interestingly, those famous cases were decided uh, actually during the Red Scare uh, after the, you know, by the time they made their way up to the court, the war had actually, was actually over. Um, They were after the armistice. Um, That said, there were some lower court decisions along these lines uh, during the war. Uh, And I said, increasingly, as I said, increasingly, there were defenses of this concept emerging in progressive outlets. But not, you know, conscientious objectors were a much harder uh, sell because it was a lot more difficult to explain why a right of conscience to exempt oneself from the neutral operation of law fit into progressive ideals than it was for free speech. So the NCLB got a ton of pushback on that work throughout the war, um, and especially they got pushback when they turned to the courts. I'll, I'll emphasize that that a uh, very fiercely anti-labor decision came down, you know, the same uh, enforcing property rights, the same month that the NCLB uh, was asking the Supreme Court to invalidate the Selective Service Act for violating constitutional rights. So this was not popular with uh, progressives. You know, it grew out of uh, the strong understanding within what was left of uh, the NCLB leadership. The NCLB by this point had broken off from the American Union uh, of Militarism. Uh, what was left was a core of people who were committed to labor rights, many of whom were affiliated uh, with the Socialist Party. And they really felt that the the speech prosecutions and uh, the prosecution of conscientious objectors were efforts to shut down radical activity in the United States. Uh, and they were willing to use whatever method they thought might work to try to protect those actors and protesters. They weren't successful in the courts, uh, but they were willing to try. I mean, this is this is one of the things that's sort of uh, ironic about this early moment. We have this, this sense that what distinguished the ACLU from other organization was that other organizations was that it adhered to principle. It always uh, defended the views of people it didn't like. It was committed to a sort of abstract ideal. And so uh, it clung to principle. In practice, it was exactly the opposite. It was the NCLB and later the ACLU that basically said, we're going to throw a whole bunch of things out there and see what sticks. Um, And, you know, if that means turning to the courts you know, our progressive allies might think this is a horrible move, that this is legitimating judicial review and the intervention of the courts and this concept of individual rights. But look, you know, if it 
if that's what works, we'll do it. If that would works, if if that's what works to secure worker rights, to pave the way to the general strike, to pave the way to revolution, we're going to be tactically agile and flexible. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, it really does turn this kind of the ACLU is going to protect anti-war protesters, but also Nazis' right to march in Skokie. That being our very conventional understanding of this neutral, principled commitment to free speech in and of itself. The history you tell totally turns that on its head. But perhaps the biggest wartime campaign undertaken by the NCLB was its defense of the IWW, which was targeted by massive federal raids in 1917, which led to the prosecution of more than 100 defendants charged with conspiring to undermine the war effort. Why were the Wobblies targeted for such particularly severe repression? And then what made this trial such a key moment, uh, as you argue, in the development of a modern civil liberties movement that would look to the courts to defend rights, particularly given how miserably the NCLB and the IWW failed in court at, at the time. This IWW trial is really fascinating. This is not a case that appears in uh, ordinary histories of the First Amendment because it didn't involve, at least primarily, speech claims. But it was absolutely core to the vision that the ACLU eventually adopted when it was founded in 1920 uh, and to the worldview of the ACLU leadership. So, as you said, over 100 defendants, uh, actually over 150 defendants, one of whom was uh, Big Bill Haywood, right? So this was an effort quite expressly to litigate the IWW out of existence. Um, So you asked why. Um, Ostensibly, what the government said was that the IWW was interfering with the war effort by counseling uh, members not to serve in the military. But really what they were worried about was uh, that the IWW was organizing strikes in war industries. And so This was a big deal. The AFL during this period basically agreed to cease disruptive labor activity uh, in service of the war effort, and there was cooperation with the administration. The IWW saw this as an opportunity to make gains in places where uh, there had been horrific abuses. And for the first time, you know, there's a labor shortage. People uh, are uh, going overseas to fight. There's a crucial need for lumber, for steel. And the IWW uh, wanted to take advantage of that to uh, make some gains. And simply simply put, the, the, the government uh, was not o- okay with that. So they prosecute basically the entire uh, IWW leadership. And eventually, they uh, get convictions The arguments that are made are not particularly formative for the future of constitutional law. By the time the the Supreme Court looks at this, by the time the uh, Court of Appeals looks at this, basically the the arguments had all been hashed out in the more famous uh, cases from this era that produced uh, Supreme Court precedent on point. But the case is really important because it teaches the NCLB leadership, and particularly Roger Baldwin, the value of a trial for publicity purposes. What the 
NCLB does during this period uh, is it drums up support for the IWW. Yeah, they don't they don't just defend the IWW in court. They produce and widely distribute a pro IWW pamphlet. This really substantive defense of a very radical, very controversial organization, not not just its right to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, this uh, pamphlet they produced, the truth about uh, the IWW, is called, um, was uh, ha- expressly designed to document the campaign by war profiteers. They said and employing interests to use the war to crush the IWW. So this was like a uh, straightforward indictment of industrial capitalism. And what they were defending was the IWW's right to engage in economic protest activities, not uh, to sort of speak abstractly about their program. This pamphlet barely mentioned free speech at all. And in fact, this pamphlet, uh, when the NCLB issued it, the government almost immediately moved to suppress it. Postal officials declared it non-mailable. You know, the DOG even told express companies not to, to um, carry it, so not to deliver it. So uh, this was a uh, perceived at the time as a uh, quite subversive pamphlet. Now, this was one aspect of the work that the uh, that the NCLB was doing on behalf of of uh, the IWW. I should say, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of its flexibility, it was also trying to do things like fundraise and speak to administrative officials about ending the prosecution. And to that end, it was trying to get respected leaders on board. This was uh, a tactic that the ACLU would use to really good effect throughout the 1920s and 30s. The the idea here is you get prominent citizens, prominent public leaders to express concern about the trial. And in doing that, they started by uh, being pretty antagonistic toward the government in, for example, in an advertisement they placed in the New Republic. But the, the people they wanted to sign on wouldn't sign on unless it was toned down. So that pamphlet they made about the right to a fair trial. And, you know, in a lot of their public facing communications, uh, they were talking about procedural fairness rather than their substantive substantive agenda. Uh, But it was the substantive agenda uh, that really mattered to them. And I should say to to the IWW itself, the trial, you know, the IWW leadership saw this as a great opportunity to uh, get its experiences, get the experiences of workers across to ordinary people, because the trial was covered like daily in the newspapers. And a lot of things that they felt hadn't been said and hadn't been heard by framing it as testimony, you know, talking about tragedies that had happened uh, in in mines and in uh, lumber camps, um, the abuses that workers were encountering there, they thought that getting this stuff into the open uh, would matter a lot. I, I can't, I, I can't uh, resist adding that they also read uh, the report of the Commission of Industrial Relations uh, into, into the record because uh, of its emphasis on, uh, you know, the congressional findings that, in fact, economic inequality was extremely severe and and a very big problem in the United States. The anti-radical fervor did did not subside with the war's end, quite to the contrary. The end of the war and the Bolshevik Revolution, all of that saw this wave of reaction in the first Red Scare. 
the Palmer raids, the U.S. House of Representatives even refusing to seat Wisconsin socialist Victor Berger. At the same time, there there was a major upsurge in labor activity, including the Seattle general strike of 1919. But all of that was met, even in the case of moderate AFL unions, unions that had been close to Wilson during the war, with constant anti-labor judicial injunctions and repression. How did the political climate after the war, then moving into the booming economy and Republican government of the 1920s, how did that shape the ACLU and the broader labor movement? Because you write that the ACLU came around to the idea that, quote, the key to rolling back the wartime repression was to unify public support for civil liberties across class and political lines. As a tactical matter, that meant extracting the fight for free speech from the labor struggles in which it was embedded. That seems like a massive shift from where the ACLU or its predecessor organization, the NCLB, where they were at in their deeply substantive defense of the IWW. What accounts for that shift? Right. So I want to emphasize that was a really gradual shift. So first of all, when the ACLU was founded in 1920, it declared itself to be, frankly, as it put it, a partisan of labor. Uh, And it said, our place is in the fight. Uh, So what the ACLU was doing in the early period was it was going out, uh, sending representatives out alongside striking workers to to picket um, and to try to get themselves arrested. And this was, uh, as I said, borrowing directly from the IWW. Uh, Roger Baldwin had, in fact, briefly joined the IWW. Uh, the, the the founder of the ACLU traveled around the country uh, doing some uh, manual labor, uh, basically, to live his commitment to the IWW philosophy before coming back and saying, oh, actually, maybe my efforts are better spent founding an organization to defend uh, striking workers. But that's what he does. And so that's what the ACLU was initially. They did go to court in that very early period, say 1920 to 1924, but they went to court for the express purpose of losing. And this is something we have to understand, and it's one of the reasons that it's easy to think of the ACLU as following a consistent line through this period, because as it turns out, ACLU lawyers litigated a lot of the most important cases involving the Red Scare, uh, involving convictions under various sedition laws of labor advocates and, and radicals during this period, but it did it because it thought that doing so would prove how hypocritical the courts were and that that would, in fact, drum up support for court curbing legislation. As late as 1924, and we'll see into the 1930s, but in, in 1924, the ACLU was calling for a statute eliminating judicial review. So hard to imagine this, obviously, in in retrospect, but they were going into uh, court for the purpose of airing, just like the IWW, airing uh, the grievances of their clients, um, basically trying to get them a forum for describing what was happening on the ground, but also to show people that the courts were not even handed in their application of constitutional rights. That shifts. So why does it shift? In part because the great coal and steel strikes fail, because labor is suppressed, because important 
injunctions are issued. Uh, you know, when when the ACLU reports on civil liberties cases in its annual reports for those first five, six years, virtually every case is a labor case, not a First Amendment case. You know, that's what they saw as the abuses of civil liberties because they uh, still understood civil liberties as fundamentally this, this right of agitation, these labor rights. Eventually, the leadership comes to the conclusion that imminent change is not happening, that basically the right of agitation whose goal in in that uh, initial program was to bring about peaceful economic transformation, that it wasn't on the horizon immediately. And so they they turn to a long-term strategy. Basically, they turn from an emphasis on drumming up enough support among workers for an immediate for immediate mass actions to uh, a long-term campaign of what they call propaganda of of essentially education uh, through various institutions to promote their cause. And that too uh, requires protection, uh, because that too is getting uh, shut down in the courts. But it also turns out that that some of what they're doing in this period is less threatening, less certain to lead to conviction than some of the uh, earlier cases they were bringing. There's a total debate within the organization in this period over what it is that the ACLU should be doing. The 1920s was a period of soul searching. Um, when the ACLU founded was founded, there were only three lawyers on the, on the board. Uh, by the end of the decade, there were a ton of lawyers. And the lawyers were saying increasingly, look, we, we bring these cases. It turns out our clients don't want to go to jail. <laughs> For propaganda um, purposes. <laughs> exactly. Um, increasingly, they're saying, look, you know, what our clients want is to be able to to go back home and continue to engage in this work. They do not want to just be the face of a of a judicial hop- hypocrisy propaganda movement. And, and they get this feedback from people they're representing. They get it from lawyers they're working with, some of them quite sort of uh, established, respectable mainstream lawyers like Felix Felix Frankfurter, who says, you've got to stop this idea of generating (laughs) propaganda through defeats in court. It doesn't get you anywhere. (laughs) But even the ACLU lawyers who were uh, initially bringing these cases increasingly think, look, this isn't this isn't uh, how we're going to succeed in the long term. And so what they do is they tone down their claims. Including in a fight against anti-union repression in Patterson, New Jersey, in I think like 1924. So it's a labor case, but they step away from this substantive attachment to the labor struggle. Yes, that's right. So, you know, this is another case of Roger Baldwin getting himself arrested. He goes (laughs) uh, and marches with striking silk workers in Patterson. And initially, he is very clear in his statement to the court. You know, he invites his arrest. He wants uh, to make this a spectacle. And he goes in and says, you know, this is another example of uh, capitalist oppression. But by the time this case is appealed at the end of the decade, people like Walter Nellis uh, are telling him, we, we've got to, and, and 
by the way, with significant pushback, but they're telling him, we've got to change our strategy here. And so what we have to do is is present uh, you as having been simply defending the right to speak. Um, and this is what they say in their brief uh, to uh, uh, the appellate court and, and eventually New Jersey's uh, high court. And to talk about things like, and they do this in a, in a variety of cases at this point, uh, the sufficiency of the pleading, the um, uh, sort of technical claims that they make, claims about uh, the, the sufficiency of the evidence, factual arguments about whether, in fact, the statute was violated, rather than bold, sweeping claims about what the First Amendment encompasses, which uh, at this point, the, the ACLU lawyers are saying it's hopeless. The, the status of civil liberties, they say in this period, is hopeless so far as it concerns the courts of law. So, they're trying at this point for a more incremental strategy. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages by Ray Acheson. Abolishing State Violence is an urgent and accessible analysis of the key structures of state violence in our world today and a clarion call to action for their abolition. The book shows that there are many mutually supportive abolition movements, each enhanced by a shared understanding of the relationship between structures of violence and a shared framework for challenging them on the basis of their roots in patriarchy, racism, militarism, settler colonialism, and capitalism. As Beth E. Ritchie puts it, the analysis is so clear, and the demand to build a different world is so compelling that readers will turn the last pages of this book and be ready to get to work for freedom. Abolishing State Violence by Ray Atchison, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. This huge shift that's underway for the ACLU is really evident in the famous 1925 Scopes trial, the so-called Scopes Monkey trial over the constitutionality of a Tennessee law that barred the teaching of evolution in public schools. On one side was the ACLU and, once again, radical lawyer Clarence Darrow, who were challenging the law. The, the latter believed that people were fundamentalists, essentially, because it was, quote, cheaper to pay working men in religious dope. Defending the law, on the other hand, was the legendary populist William Jennings Bryan, whose 1896 Democratic presidential campaign Darrow had enthusiastically supported. So we see a lot of imminent contradictions coming to the fore in, in American history. And he defended the law on the Democratic grounds that it had been duly passed by a legislature and that elites through the courts had no business to strike it down. The sort of position that, from a labor angle, the ACLU's founders would have not that long before been rather sympathetic to. 
how did the ACLU find its way into this case and what did it reveal about their changing approach to to free speech and civil liberties? Yeah, that's right. This is really a fascinating and eye-opening case, I think, in a lot of ways. Because if there's any case that is associated with the interwar ACLU, it's Scopes. But we really have not understood the work that Scopes was doing for the ACLU. So it was doing a few things. First of all, I've talked about how they felt their long-term program at this point had to turn on education. And I won't go into the details, but the Rand School of Social Science in New York, which was a socialist uh, school for workers, was closely connected to many within the ACLU. Many of the ACLU uh, board members and leadership taught there. They really wanted to protect it. And New York was trying to shut it down. Um, So there was this real worry that education was a target, uh, you know, not unlike today, right? There was a, a concern that if if conservatives saw social change brewing, the way they would go after it was to affect education, um, to shut down efforts, to promote disruptive views in, in the schools. Okay, so that was one thing that was motivating them to, to move into this academic freedom work, which is what they saw uh, Scopes as. Secondly, it was a coalition building exercise. I mean, you know, Baldwin actually writes during this period, oh, this is great. We can do fundraising. Uh, people will give to this campaign without worrying about contamination with the defensive reds. The liberal elites love it. The conservative elites at the ABA love it that the ACLU's taken on these these hicks. Absolutely. And and you know, this is a moment where there really is buy-in among elites across the political spectrum, right? So progressives think academic freedom is really important. Conservatives were really worried in this period about government overreach, as they were, uh, you know, you know, throughout this period, uh, were worried about government overreach and trampling on what they saw as as uh, individual autonomy. Um, so, you know, the fascinating thing about this is that the ACLU's lawyers, who uh, argue, who are involved in this case, Arthur Garfield Hayes, more than Darrow, I, I guess I'll sort of bracket Darrow's in, in involvement for the time being, but. Hayes uh, is making arguments about the property and liberty of contract rights of Scopes as a teacher to practice his profession. He's relying on these cases that had long been used by conservatives. And I should say, like, you know, he they get conservative buy-in on this. Progressives are actually pretty appalled. This is a key point, too. So the conventional story of the First Amendment assumes that those Holmes and Brandeis dissents in 1919, 1920, that was when the the modern First Amendment was born. Everyone realized what a great idea free speech was. Holmes and Brandeis persuaded progressives through, you know, participation in the marketplace of ideas. They they persuaded them that the courts should be enforcing uh, the First Amendment. That was was absolutely not true. Um, in fact, when those early decisions were issued, they were used by progressives as mobilizing dissents, uh, as yet more evidence that the court should be reined in. And when the ACLU takes this position in scopes, the reaction in the New Republic, for example, was to say, look, if the ACLU is going to be involved in this, it should be doing so by appealing to the people of Tennessee, 
to the legislatures and to the people. You know, the anti-evolution law may be undesirable, but the solution, they say, is not constitutional litigation, especially litigation citing the due process rights uh, of a teacher to ignore the legislative will of the people. Um, so it's a, it's a pivotal moment. It's a moment of coalition building, but it is still a moment where uh, the modern civil liberties understanding has not yet taken root. This all seems to point to this constant conundrum for the ACLU that while the left needs this majoritarian state to protect worker power and build socialism, in actually existing American reality, the left is often in the minority and persecuted. And so it's not simply a story, and we're only kind of like partway through the story, it's not simply a story about the ACLU selling out, though I think there was plenty of selling out for sure, but also these very real dilemmas, problems whose solutions required trade-offs that were, were really hard for them to square. That's right. This is a an extremely complicated story for everyone involved. And, and I want to emphasize that the ACLU leadership itself was engaged in constant soul-searching to try to figure out how to reconcile these contradictions that you're pointing to. Uh, there were, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, going to be able to go into the details, but every single one of these episodes caused uh, contentious internal debates, often prompted resignations. These were not decisions that were easy for anyone involved. One thing that really jumped out to me in your book is that of all the things that made the ACLU turn toward judicial review, toward asking courts to strike down laws passed by legislatures, is that the condition of Black people, particularly but not exclusively in the South, wasn't really one of them. And it's not like the ACLU didn't oppose segregation and racist repression. In fact, they had close relationships with the NAACP, the Garland Fund, which provided critical financing to the ACP, NAACP, and also to the, the communist-aligned International Labor Defense, ILD, which um, – and in one case, they did actually get involved in the Scottsboro Boys case. But, but the ACLU generally did not see black rights as part of their struggle – for civil liberties. And it wasn't one of the things that really prompted them to say, hey, maybe we need the court to strike down democratic laws. Why? Right. So this is an extremely important and extremely complicated uh, story as well. Uh, and it goes back all the way to Roger Baldwin's initial uh, experience as a progressive reformer in St. Louis, where he pushes for democratic reforms like the initiative and, and referendum. And the very first thing that happens is uh, a racially exclusive zoning law. And it's it's a constitutional uh, rights claim that actually eventually uh, invalidates that, that law. So this was something Baldwin understood and, and, and grappled with. But, you know, the fundamental question of why were they not more engaged in the work of racial justice? And they, they were to, to some extent. They put out a pamphlet in 1931 called Black Justice um, uh, that talked about discriminatory laws, um, but also lynching. They were involved in legislative efforts to secure anti-lynching laws. And as you suggested, there was always representation from the ACLU leadership on the NAACP board and vice versa. Why wasn't it more of a focus? Um, there's two aspects to this. One is simply organizational turf. And this 
stems partly from the fact that Baldwin, as you said, was administering uh, the Garland Fund, which was funding a lot of uh, NAACP work during this period. Uh, but there was a sense that the ACLU has its mission and the NAACP has its mission, and we don't want to step on toes. Um, so that's part of it. But at a deeper level, and this is where things get um, more complicated, there was a view among many within the ACLU leadership, and this includes Roger Baldwin at least early on, that the race problem was at bottom a function of the class problem, right? This was not just the ACLU leadership's view. Actually, um, Baldwin um, was corresponding with leadership, even within the NAACP during this period. There's an NAACP field secretary who uh, writes a pamphlet uh, that the ACLU puts out making this claim. But, you know, it's obviously, we can recognize uh, this claim as a product of a particular um, uh, strain of Marxist thinking. Um, that was in many ways uh, woefully incomplete and misguided, but it was a deeply held view among many within uh, the ACLU leadership. And so they really thought that their mission was to take care of the labor problem. And if they were successful in doing that, the race problem, as they put it, would take care of itself. Roosevelt's 1932 election and the beginning of the New Deal marked a major turning point for the ACLU, particularly with regard to state intervention that, for really the first time, aimed to protect rather than repress organized labor. Why, as you argue, did state action to protect labor force all of these latent contradictions within the ACLU Civil Liberties Coalition to the surface? Right. So the New Deal poses a fundamental challenge for the ACLU's traditional understanding. Part of this is the fact that when the members of the Civil Liberties Coalition had no access to the levers of power, there were certain disagreements they could just set aside because they were unlikely, uh, in some sense, to, to ever present themselves. But Part of this is also about the fact that the ACLU, through this process of coalition building that I talked about during the 1920s, had changed, right? So it had turned to the courts, it had hired more lawyers, it had brought in more donors from a broader range of perspectives and political views. And in the process, it had itself transformed into an organization that, to some extent, for some within the new leadership, was understood as a, a, an organization devoted to the defense of free speech, full stop, not to the underlying goals of the labor movement. There's a couple other aspects that I should mention. One is that uh, an earlier entry in New Deal labor legislation had changed their calculus with respect to the courts. And I won't say much about it, but I will just note uh, that the Norris LaGuardia Act, which the ACLU had helped to pass uh, and had advocated for very forcefully, had basically taken the courts, the federal courts, out of the business of issuing labor injunctions. So this threat that had always been on 
the horizon for the ACLU of, of the courts intervening in labor's disputes to shut them down by issuing labor injunctions was finally more or less off the table. You know, the ACLU had always been more flexible about its attitude toward injunctions. In fact, it had put out a pamphlet called Don't Tread on Me, uh, in which, uh, through the work of its attorney, Arthur Garfield Hayes, it had urged labor unions to seek injunctions. This is back to that sort of flexibility point we were talking about earlier. Other labor lawyers were horrified. They said, why would you possibly invite injunctions in this space and more judicial uh, presence? But the ACLU said, we'll do whatever it takes. Uh, And if we lose, we lose great more publicity, right? So that's part of it too. But the Norris-LaGuardia Act changes uh, changes the landscape on the ground. So the Norris-LaGuardia Act was a statute that stripped jurisdiction in the context, in, in for, for courts to enjoin most labor disputes. It also made yellow dog contracts unenforceable. Note this kind of neat use of uh, state power rather than prohibiting them. It says, we're not going to enforce them. This is a sort of understanding of the background role that state power is playing in in enforcing property rights, but in any case, um, and, co- and contractual rights. But Norris LaGuardia Act uh, is passed. So where does this leave the ACLU? ACLU at this point feels like Courts are a friendlier forum now for making some of their claims, for trying to get picketing and boycotts, along with all this other individual rights materials protected. They're still pretty wary, and this grows out of Roger Baldwin's uh, especially deep aversion to uh, investing in state power. They're still pretty wary about allowing the state to come into the sphere of labor relations. And that's because Baldwin believes that the state will always inevitably serve the interests of capital, and that if you let the state in, even if there are guarantees now for the right to strike, for the right of agitation, that through the process of sort of bureaucratic accretion, um, uh, eventually those rights will be curtailed. A sort of wobbly critique. Yes, absolutely. And also, by the way, uh, you know, there's there's a Communist Party critique um, that is parallel, although not entirely overlapping with Baldwin's. uh, But they were worried also about provisions in the National Labor Relations Act for exclusive representation and majority rule because they felt the communist unions basically would be suppressed under that system, uh, especially in the context of closed shops. They'd be pushed out of a lot of industries and also, of course, had this critique of um, capitalist uh, appropriation of labor's tactics. But all right. So there were some people within the ACLU core leadership who shared Baldwin's views and who were reluctant to expand and legitimate state power in this domain. I should also connect this back to the to the question you just asked about the role of race, because majority exclusive representation and majority rule in this context often meant the exclusion of Black workers. So, you know, this is really important to to remember. In this period, there were closed shops and in many cases, racially exclusionary closed shops, which meant that functionally, Black workers who were not admitted into these unions could not uh, find employment in many of in many of these industries and the NAACP 
recognize that problem when the NLRA was proposed, and so did uh, many Black labor groups. Uh, but there was, at some level, a decision made to prioritize, you know, and this was contested, of course, but uh, the leadership that the ACLU was working with ultimately decided that it was more important to get the labor law first with the hope that uh, unions would voluntarily integrate. Of course, that didn't happen. And the story uh, of the continual exclusion of Black workers from a lot of these unions Less the CIO than the AFL, but both were uh, deeply at fault over the next uh, several decades is, is, I think, a really crucial component of the collapse of Democratic Party coalition and uh, uh, of liberalism more broadly during the 20th century. So it's an important part of the story. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the racialized contradictions of the New Deal order are really what their explosion ultimately is really what lays the groundwork for the rise of neoliberalism in so many ways, which is another episode entirely. But <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And and the ACLU did talk about this. So I, I should say so Baldwin initially opposes the National Labor Relations Act. Baldwin initially opposes the Wagner Act. And in his explanation of why he talks about these issues, he talks about the exclusion of primarily black workers in agricultural and uh, uh, domestic labor jobs. He talks about the problem of uh, exclusive representation with respect to race, but also with respect to more radical unions. But he gets forceful pushback. And that's because by this point, his IWW-inflected skepticism towards state power uh, has more or less fallen by the wayside. Even the AFL, which had historically had been voluntarist, uh, uh, meaning, you know, we talked about this a little earlier, uh, had resisted the intervention of the state in governing the terms of of their contracts. Even the AFL was coming around to the view that in a modernizing industrial economy, some sort of state power, a thumb on the scale for unions was necessary. And this was another moment where there were threatened resignations, where labor leaders within the ACLU's, uh, within the ACLU core said, if you oppose the NLRA, I'm out. And eventually, the ACLU withdrew its opposition to the NLRA, but it also remained, in many cases, ambivalent toward it. Now, that ended pretty quickly because by the middle of the 1930s, there was a strong sense that uh, the Wagner Act was absolutely crucial, that it was the best thing that had ever happened for the labor movement and for civil liberties. You see this massive expansion of union membership. You see uh, really effective organizing drives among uh, unskilled workers uh, for the first time and a very friendly National Labor Relations Board. In its initial period, the NLRB was uh, staunchly pro-labor and, in fact, pro-CIO as opposed to to pro-AFL. And that comes out uh, in a lot of its uh, decisions. You know, meanwhile, you've got Congress forming for the first time a civil liberties committee, the LaFollette Committee for the Protection of Civil Liberties, the express purpose of which is to enforce the rights contained with the Wagner Act. Uh, Basically, labor rights for 1930s New Dealers were civil liberties. And that's because of what the ACLU uh, had made them in the uh, 1920s. 
even as the ACLU in so many ways laid the groundwork for this huge advance in labor rights, they also, quote, ironically helped preserve liberal legalism at the very time it proved most vulnerable. In the 1930s, New Dealers launched a frontal assault on the federal courts. Advocates and politicians maneuvered to limit judicial power through legislation, constitutional amendment, and changes in personnel. To deflect such measures, conservatives appropriated the ACLU's sporadic legal victories of the previous years as evidence of the benefits of judicial review. It's really a remarkable story. What what was this crisis that erupted in 1936 and 1937 between FDR and the Supreme Court? How did FDR's enemies on the business and legal right appropriate the ACLU's track record? And why did the ACLU end up not taking any position at all or an organization that in its early years was extraordinarily hostile to judicial power? We have been talking about the ways in which the ACLU was increasingly investing in constitutional litigation during this period and the fact that it had begun, and maybe I haven't gotten this point across actually, it had begun to eke out some incremental victories with respect to the First Amendment and to some extent on issues of criminal procedure. You mentioned the Scottsboro Boy cases. There were others. Uh, So there, there were some gains in the courts. On the whole, however, the Supreme Court continued to stand in the way of progressive legislation. This was, of course, uh, nowhere more evident than in its decisions, one after the other, striking down uh, signature New Deal legislation. Uh, So, you know, I've said that at this point, the ACLU, by the the mid-1930s, at least by 1936, the ACLU feels like the Wagner Act is a really big deal, and it has to be saved. On the other hand, it's starting to see some limited uh, victories on First Amendment issues, but nothing monumental on that front. So when Roosevelt introduces the court packing plan, there's a lot of hand-wringing. And I should say, prior to the introduction of the court packing plan, there was a lot of uh, support for various forms of court curbing legislation, a lot of which we're seeing again today. So there were proposals for constitutional amendments to get the court out of the, the invalidation of economic rights and and social rights. There were jurisdiction stripping measures. There were proposals for congressional vetoes of uh, legislative decisions. There were all sorts of things proposed uh, to try to uh, rein in judicial power. But what happens instead is uh, FDR announces his court packing plan. And the court packing plan wasn't particularly popular, in part because it was perceived as disingenuous. It, it it got people a little nervous. Even some within the ACLU were worried that it smacked of uh, sort of fascist tendencies, that it was going to give too much power to uh, to Roosevelt. And they really wanted these other, what they saw as more democratically rooted solutions uh, instead. The ACLU remained ambivalent about both the court pet. So, you know, there were still a bunch of staunch New Dealers within 
the ACLU who who were enthusiastic boosters of the court packing plan. Uh, there were others who were more reluctant. The the court packing plan itself, though, didn't as squarely pose this fundamental problem of is judicial review itself uh, a good idea? Because court packing was about personnel change, court expansion, not about eliminating judicial review. On that, too, there was real ambivalence from the ACLU. So ACLU polled all of its uh, members and a lot of its uh, prominent uh, lawyers about what they thought about court curbing legislation. They they commissioned a study of whether the Supreme Court had been a defender of civil liberties uh, sufficient to justify maintaining judicial review. And the answer was basically no, um, that there was, for the most part, the Supreme Court had done more harm than good. And so the ACLU decided to stay out of this uh, issue. They basically, you know, this is the most important issue uh, with respect to judicial review, most important moment with respect to judicial review probably in history until maybe today. uh, And the ACLU took no position because it couldn't decide whether it was worth giving up aggressive enforcement of the First Amendment, which is what it still aspired to, in order at, with the risk of preserving these economic decisions. You know, there's one other point I should mention on this, which is today we take it for granted that you can dis- disaggregate the enforcement of property rights from the enforcement of personal rights. You know, that's uh, what we describe as the New Deal settlement. Uh, It's uh, often associated with footnote four of Caroline Products. It's this idea that the court should get out of the business of invalidating social and economic legislation. It should defer to legislatures with respect to the outputs of the legislative process, but it has to aggressive police the inputs, aggressively police the inputs into that process. Uh, things like free speech and min- minority rights. These are levels of scrutiny. Correct. Right. Exact. Those things today typically get what's known as strict scrutiny, a more exacting form of scrutiny as compared with rational basis review for legislation that affects uh, the economy. That was an idea that in many ways the ACLU helped to produce. So we often think it just sort of came into being with footnote four of Caroline Products. You know, the proposals that the ACLU was making when it was polled on court curbing were almost entirely in that vein. So the court imposes it on itself in later years. The ACLU uh, and some of its allies had tried to bring about exactly that balance through constitutional amendment. But even still, there was a worry that, you know, empowering the judiciary would inevitably backfire. The apotheosis of the, the ACLU's transformation from this radical labor organization to a liberal one really comes, I think, when they make the decision to actually back business anti-union speech against the United Auto Workers and the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. And The case revolved around one of the most famous events in U.S. labor history, the 1937 Battle of the Overpass, when Walter Ruther and other UAW leaders were were beaten by Ford Motor Company goons while attempting to hand out leaflets. How was it that the ACLU, an organization founded to support worker revolution, ends up siding with the boss? What made the ACLU adopt this sort of like liberal pluralist perspective that labor was yet 
another major force in society whose power had to be checked and balanced just like any other a force just as capable of unlawful coercion as a corporation because labor radicals would have argued that that speech was necessarily embedded within power dynamics and so that a statement from a boss to a worker like the statements that ford was making to ford workers were inherently coercive and that was the very sort of insight i think you write that that helped overturn the Lochner era's consecration of the liberty of contract. What about the New Deal and about the labor movement of that time made the ACLU shift toward this liberal view that held free speech to be a disembodied right that belonged to the boss, too? So I need to say one thing to to explain how they got there, which is I've just said uh, the ACLU was ambivalent about court curbing. But Other groups were not ambivalent. And those groups were the American Bar Association, which at that time was quite conservative, and increasingly employers uh, and uh, uh, corporate lobbyists. So there's this fascinating moment where the ABA opposes the court packing plan and court curbing legislation. It's trying to figure out how it's going to do it. And it does it by putting out pamphlets celebrating the very civil liberties cases that they had opposed when litigated by the ACLU (laughs) as crucial evidence that judicial review was necessary. And, you know, they hope in so doing to preserve judicial review. Now, the Supreme Court famously in the spring of 1937 in its so-called switch in time, the constitutional revolution, as I said, does this uh, uh, on its own, gets out of the business. It upholds it upholds the Wagner Act. Um, it also upholds a minimum wage law. So in the spring of 1937, conservatives see that the court is no longer going to be their defender on the basis of property rights or or the Commerce Clause, which were the traditional constitutional provisions they relied on. But by this point, they had actually sort of invested in this narrative about free speech being good for business, uh, free speech being good for conservatives. Um, And in part, that's because the New Deal, for the first time, New Deal administration was starting to target conservatives in a way. So, you know, these sorts of defenses were coming into play, as uh, ABA's president famously put it, you know, the rights being invaded were the patent leather shoes of the wealthy. That's why a uh, ABA Civil Liberties Committee was necessary, Committee on the Bill of Rights. But in- <laughs> I think he said like the, to- the toes being stepped on are, are in patent leather shoes or something. It was hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, needless to say, that generated a bit of skepticism about whether business groups at the ABA were in this uh, for principle uh, or to save uh, their own skins. But in any case, they too, I mean, this is the flip side of the story of the ACLU internalizing its commitment to free speech. To some extent, business groups did that too. And that's especially after the spring of 1937, because they couldn't rely on property rights anymore to get laws targeting them struck down. So what do they do? They turn to the First Amendment. And this is, uh, you know, this is what we talked about in, in our very first uh, few moments. They realize almost uh, immediately after the spring of 1937 that the First Amendment can do a lot of the work that 
previously had been done by substantive due process, by property rights, by liberty of contract. And this took a lot of forms. It was about commercial advertising. It was about protecting lobbying. It was about opposing media consolidation. I mean, there were all sorts of aspects to this uh, that that I won't get into. But one of them was about anti-union advocacy. So what conservative groups saw pretty clearly pretty early on was that the First Amendment could be used as a basis for invalidating the provisions or for at least constraining the provisions of the NLRA that prevented employers from engaging in anti-union propaganda. You know, that's the the turn of events that tees up the Ford v. NLRB case. That case was about whether this new claim on the part of employers to be defending the First Amendment should be recognized. And this was, you know, I've said lots of issues almost tore the ACLU apart, but this one really did. Because Many within the core leadership of the ACLU were still, above all, committed to an idea of civil liberties as labor power, as organizing, as a right to organize, picket, and strike. Um, And that was a right that the court had actually briefly recognized, um, you know, really... So 1937 constitutional revolution is quite revolutionary because a majority of the Supreme Court in Jones and Lachlan, uh, Jones uh, and Lachlan Steele says the right to organize is a fundamental right. And so we're not striking down the Wagner Act. Now, they do it on the basis of the Commerce Clause. They don't say there's a constitutional right to engage in organizing. But, you know, they do say it is a fundamental right. So for the labor leftists within the ACLU, the idea that you would now undermine that right to organize by relying on the First Amendment right of employers to issue anti-union pamphlets was a total betrayal of their goals. This is really complicated, though. It's not just a matter, as you said earlier, of selling out. Um, Because for some within the ACLU, there was a real concern that siding with the NLRB on this would come back to bite labor. And here's the reason for that. What the NLRB was saying in this case when it said Ford Motor Company can't distribute these Fordisms, it can't discourage people from unionizing. What it was saying was those communications are coercive. Why are they coercive? Because workers understand what happens when you go against the boss, right? They understand that their job is on the line. And so if Ford is discouraging unionization in the context of brutal violence in the Battle of the Overpass, everybody sees what happens to union organizers if we allow those communications what we are permitting is coercion, not speech, not persuasion. All right, where have we heard that argument before? Um, This is exactly the argument that had been made time and again to to deny First Amendment protection to labor activity. And so for another segment within the ACLU board who remained committed to labor, there was this real concern that 
crediting the coercion point would actually undermine the right of agitation. Um, And that, I think, was Baldwin's view. This is the first moment in history, and, and the only one, really, when it looked like the court might actually recognize the right of agitation. And in fact, in 1940, in a case called Thornhill v. Alabama, it did do just that. It said the right to engage in picketing is uh, protected speech. And the ACLU was really worried that some within the ACLU were really worried that crediting this coercion point would backfire. Um, So basically, you know, complicated views on all sides of this question. There's another segment of the ACLU that simply had by this point forgotten or erased the earlier history where uh, the right of agitation was the court commitment and had come on board because of cases like Scopes instead, uh, and for whom uh, this was all a distraction from the true from the true issues at stake, which were about uh, the unfettered right uh, to express ideas, and that that's what free speech was. It was just this sort of um, uh, right for everybody to um, to say what they want, untethered from labor. Obviously, these positions overlap and come into tension in all sorts of forceful ways. And the ACLU's anti-communist purge of 1940, a really famous or I guess infamous event in the organization's history when the ACLU adopts this new position, expels its only openly communist board member, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a founding member of the organization. The episode is really the coda to this move we were just discussing, this move from the labor left to liberalism, even though, if I understand you write your book right, it's often presented in this more decontextualized form as as a moment where the ACLU lacked principle, a moment of cowardice in the face of anti-communist hysteria and the Dyes Committee investigations. That's right. So this moment, as you just said, is conventionally understood as a moment when the ACLU capitulated to anti-communism and basically no longer was committed to the defense of speech for all. Um, And the irony is that that's actually, in some sense, exactly backwards. This was the moment when the ACLU remaining leadership, because when they passed the resolution uh, excluding communist members, Harry Ward, longtime chair of the organization, resigned. Uh, A lot of the fellow travelers within the organization, both at the uh, national level and among the affiliates, resigned. Those who were left, the idea goes, were persecuting people for their political views. In fact, they were the ones who uh, were adopting this modern notion of what it means to be neutral. They were the ones who were saying everybody should be able to say what they want to. You know, keep in mind, of course, that the ACLU, as they often emphasized, was a private organization, that this wasn't an exercise of state censorship. But that's sort of beside the point. I mean, what they were really saying was these members of the organization are not committed to the defense of all speech. And if we continue to have, I mean, every... Every vote 
in these cases about defending employer speech. Um, and it wasn't just, I, I won't go into the other examples, but Ford was not the only one, and it came up in various contexts. And there were also debates about whether to protect sit-down strikes and whether to protect, even eventually uh, some were proposing protections for the right to work or for the rights of non-union uh, members to, uh, so, you know, this this quickly morphed. Of scabs, of scabs and strike breakers. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. As, you know, there are some within the organization who are increasingly saying, look, if we're against coercion, uh, that means you can't uh, enforce union discipline. All of this leads to this to this crisis where what's left of the board is saying, if we want to be committed to unfettered freedom for all, for the freedom to say whatever one wants, we have to exclude the communists. And uh, that's what leads to the expulsion of Flynn. Flynn had been a founder of the ACLU. You know, she had been in the free speech fights with the IWW decades earlier. She had been with the organization uh, all along. Everyone within the organization kept emphasizing that this wasn't personal, but it really was at a fundamental level. You know, as Flynn put it, the ACLU at this point had completely had completely given up on its roots and no longer was acknowledging that it's commitment was to uh, labor's right to organize. It's hard to say exactly what the core leadership's commitment was at this point. Roger Baldwin, reflecting backward, he writes uh, in, in a letter in this period, we have no ism to defend. You know, this is an organization committed purely to the preservation of the Bill of Rights. You know, Roger Baldwin in 1925 says, Political liberalism is dead. The only struggle that matters is the class struggle. You know, 30 years later, he's saying political liberalism is stronger than ever, and he's celebrating that, right? So, you know, you get this incredible about face by by Baldwin and some and and some of fellow the the core leadership but they, you know they continued in this period to to say that nothing had changed the new civil liberties consensus won by the ACLU really often held the line during World War II at least compared to World War 1 obviously the supreme court's upholding of Japanese internment was a glaring glaring exception among among many. But during the Warren Court era that followed, that consensus helped advance the civil rights movement, protected the anti-war movement and the counterculture, and also the, the rights of criminal defendants. And ultimately, the, the Supreme Court upheld rights to contraception, abortion, asterisks, and more recently, gay marriage. Today, we, or at least I did before reading your book, I often thought of this liberal sanctification of the Supreme Court and judiciary that really was exemplified by the veneration of RBG um, a few years ago. I always thought of that as being the product of the Warren Court era. How do you relate the history you tell to to that period that followed a couple decades later in terms of fostering this, until recently, really sacrosanct regard for the court? In a way, this boils down to, did these interwar civil liberties advocates really produce modern constitutional liberalism? And I think the answer to a large extent is yes. I think it's really important to say, so, you know, I've described the emergence of the modern 
understanding of the First Amendment and and the Bill of Rights more broadly as this coalition between, on the one hand, these state skeptical labor radicals within the ACLU, and on the other, these conservatives, conservative lawyers and business lobbyists who increasingly came in. Who was left out? The New Dealers who were worried that judicial enforcement of individual rights would inevitably be used to undermine worker power and who wanted to get rid of judicial review for that reason, or at least who wanted to moderate it in some way. And and it's not even just about, I should say, judicial review. It, it's about, and, and constitutional liberalism, it's really, at some level, it's about modern liberalism itself, right? Because what the ACLU did during this period is it worked hard to take these tactics that, as I said, were rooted in economic pressure and recast them in terms that were acceptable to liberalism as expressions of ideas, as persuasion, as associational freedoms. And in so doing, and and it, and at the same time, you know, of course, the, the state comes in in the form of the NLRA. And so with the state in the background, it became virtually impossible that the court was going to continue to protect those forms of economic activity. I've said that in 1940, the court in Thornhill v. Alabama recognized a uh, a right to engage in picketing as a matter of First Amendment expression. It almost immediately pulled back from that. Um, first in a case involving a union that had engaged in, in past violence, but within a matter of a decade and a half, uh, it had stripped almost totally First Amendment protection from all forms of labor activity that the ACLU had tried to get protected as part of the right of agitation. I mean, I want to underscore that point. You know, we have today strong protections for lots of other forms of speech, but not for the very tactics the ACLU was trying to protect. Part of what happened, and and this was not just a matter of the courts. I mean, I really want to emphasize it's not just the courts, it's Congress. Uh, Congress passes the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, um, stripping labor of its most powerful weapons, right? So it abolishes the closed shop, prohibits secondary boycotts, authorizes state right-to-work laws. Courts eventually upheld all of those limitations. It's also the administrative state, right? The NLRB itself uh, very quickly, uh, you know, FDR uh, appointed more conservative uh, members to the board and they started uh, constraining labor's rights. That led some uh, radical labor theorists in the in the middle of the 20th century to say that the ACLU had been right about um, the inevitable effects of uh, inviting state power in this domain. But the crucial point is what the ACLU did is it it tried to make all of these rights into expressive or associational rights, when at bottom they were more than that. And so the Warren Court itself, at its height is notable for a long line of decisions stripping unions of their power, stripping unions of their power to discipline their members, to pressure non-union workers, 
to uh, engage in the sort of activity that was necessary to sustain union power. And although not all of those cases were constitutional, at least explicitly, um, liberal constitutionalism was always very visible in the background. And of course, Janice V. asked me, and the right to work is just sort of the last step uh, along that journey. So it may be today um, that unions are in some sense well positioned to claim constitutional rights as voluntary associations. And and we may actually even be seeing to some extent a uh, trend to protect some aspect of, uh, for example, secondary activity. Court of Appeals hasn't uh, gone in that direction, um, but there is uh, certainly mobilization along those lines. In terms of like exploiting this neo-Lochnerist moment of protecting corporate power through as First Amendment protected to finally apply that to labor, at least to push for outlawed labor weapons like secondary strikes, wildcat strikes, recognitional strikes, boycotts, etc., to be recognized as protected expression as well, just to yeah, it, it, exactly. And so, so there's a movement, I should say, on the part uh, of the labor movement, and I think rightly. Well, you know, one could debate this, but uh, I think probably rightly to try to bring these sorts of claims. Um, you know, this gets to the weaponization of the First Amendment. Um, but Roger Baldwin always said labor was being too ethical in not using weapons that were directed against it, right? That was the whole point uh, of this movement. And I think there's something to that, right? You may as well uh, make the most of these tools as uh, to the extent they're available. But the trouble there is if you use basically Janus Fiasmi, which essentially upholds, I'm going to simplify it a little bit, upholds right to work for public sector workers as protected by the First Amendment. If you use Janus as a precedent to expand labor's expressive rights, on one level, it makes sense. You can't blame labor for trying to do it. But on the other hand, it reaffirms the precedent of Janus. You know, when push comes to shove, the labor movement today is in exactly the same position uh, that the ACLU was in in the 1920s and 30s, in that it's got this set of precedents um, that uh, has been used to undermine its power. And it's at a crossroads. Um, it can take those cases and try to flip them on their head and use them to sort of eke out what's left of labor rights, or it can jettison them uh, altogether and basically push for whether it's curtailing judicial review or some sort of constitutional amendment or uh, some other mechanism outside. Or it can, you know, realistically uh, do both. You know, I I think that the the worries about legitimation matter. The experience of unions that uh, are exposed to huge liability for engaging in secondary strikes also matter. So this isn't at some level an easy decision to make to forego a set of constitutional arguments that's available on the basis of principle. But the point I want to make is kind of a deeper one, which is that to the extent those arguments are available at all, it's only because unions have lost their power to coerce already. And the reason, you know, unions are, at least today, even if secondary strikes are permitted, are no longer uh, in a position 
to produce the kinds of extremely disruptive and effective strikes that we associate with the period immediately after World War II and that prompted the Taft-Hartley Act. And, uh, and that's because of this systematic effort across all institutions of government to empty unions of the power that, uh, that made that kind of activity effective in the first place. Laura Weinrib, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Laura Weinrib is a professor at Harvard Law School and at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and the author of The Taming of Free Speech, America's Civil Liberties Compromise, and is currently writing a book on why unions stood by while corporate money consumed American politics. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, in the previous substitutes for the community, in the state, etc., personal freedom has only existed for the individuals who developed within the relationships of the ruling class, and only insofar as they were individuals of this class. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Fierio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.